Good morning, you're listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on Local Current Affairs Program, Subject ACT, where we explore the issues that shape our community. My name is Becca Posterino, your presenter, executive producer of the program and 2XXFM Current Affairs Coordinator. Lovely to have your company today. Today we explore the issue of compassionate justice with Dr Anthony Hopkins, Senior Lecturer at the Australian National University's College of Law and Defence Barrister. He is also a dedicated Vipassana meditator. Today Anthony shares his insights on the concept of compassionate justice and the potential effectiveness of mindfulness and Vipassana meditation in the prison experience and scope to include such programs as part of the Australian prison experience. You've tuned into 2XXFM 98.3 on Local Current Affairs Program, Subject ACT. My name is Becca Posterino, the presenter of Monday's edition of Subject ACT. Stay with us now to meet Senior Lecturer Dr Anthony Hopkins from the Australian National University's College of Law to discuss compassionate justice. Thanks for joining us today. This morning we're talking to Dr Anthony Hopkins. He is a Senior Lecturer at the ANU College of Law and a Defence Barrister. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Becca. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Anthony, what is compassionate justice in your view? It starts by perhaps acknowledging that for many that might seem like a contradiction. For many, compassioners and, and justice don't go together and might be seen as uh, making a statement about being soft on crime. Talking about compassionate justice, though, I think is critical in our society uh, as it is today because I think it's important to reinstate compassion as a fundamental value and a motivation within a criminal justice system, which on many levels is very broken. If I could go on to talk about perhaps unpacking what compassionate justice might mean, I think that also starts with an understanding of what compassion is. Uh, It's a word that perhaps we don't use enough, perhaps we have an intuitive feeling for, uh, but it's worth getting a sense of what that might mean so that we can explore how it might be actualised in a criminal justice process. And I like to take the Dalai Lama's definition of uh, compassion, uh, which is a sensitivity to suffering in ourselves and others, Uh, with a deep motivation and commitment to alleviate it and prevent it. And with respect to the criminal justice system, I suppose that's really a recognition or requires a recognition of the suffering of those who face or come to grips with the criminal justice system, whether they be victims or offenders. And I suppose in terms of offenders specifically, it really challenges us to be willing to empathise, engage and understand and ask why they are, in fact, before Mm. the court. And from that point, to ask what can be done to alleviate Mm. the circumstances that brought them before the court. Really beautiful words that you often don't hear alongside the conversation of justice. So it's, it's really nice to hear Dalai Lama and justice together. Yes, and I I would like to to have us having those conversations openly. Mm. And I think it really becomes critically important when we have a look at the situation within the criminal justice system and the fact that a lot of what we're doing does not work. And unless we endeavour to step into the Mm. shoes of those that are facing that criminal justice system and understand their pathways, we're a long way from working out what does work. It's not as if this is really a new concept. Mm. There are many innovations within criminal justice which could be said to be underpinned by a motivation, a compassionate motivation, a willingness to be open to the suffering of those that face the criminal justice system. And there, just a couple of examples that come to mind, is that the therapeutic jurisprudence movement, restorative justice movement, which is something quite dear to the heart of the ACT, 
which has been very much a pioneer in restorative justice, but also the emerging and I think critically important push for justice reinvestment, which is really about looking at the pathways and intervening early on before people get to the criminal justice system and and putting our money there rather than at the back end in terms of Mm. uh, imprisonment. Are these complex concepts for a government to consider, let alone implement? Do you think it do you think these are a little bit too kumbaya for the mainstream to actually recognise as, as tangible and legitimate processes that we could be integrating? Well, look, I think that this is why there is a need for conversation and why I raised at the start that when you say compassion, you're often seen to be soft mm-hmm. and you're often seen to be you know, compassion towards offenders only. What about victims? And, and, and intuitively, we have conversations, uh, and intuitively and, and openly, we have conversations come out in the media that express compassion directly to victims, and so we should. But what we don't do is engage in conversations that reflect compassion towards offenders. Mm. Now, is it pie in the sky to start those conversations and to see where they go? They're already happening. I just don't think the message is getting out there loudly enough. But the other thing we have to recognise is that having that conversation really runs up against an alternative conversation, and and that is the tough-on-crime punitive agenda, which unfortunately has taken our country from a situation where our imprisonment rates have doubled in the last 20 years. So two points to be made about that. Firstly, that is an example of why our justice system is not working. It's not as if crime rates have been escalating. In fact, they've been decreasing at that time. Mm. But the second is that, unfortunately, crime, law and order, is a key political issue that gets bandied about at election time. And it's often the case that it's easy for politicians seeking to be elected or re-elected to portray heavier Mm. sentences, more immediate sanctions, even mandatory imprisonment as being essential to your safety, my safety and the members of the community's safety. And so it's tied up with deep fears that we all have about risks of crime, often fears that don't actually correlate with the statistical evidence about the likelihood of being the victim of a crime. And yet those are very powerful narratives and they come out loudly to uh, smash down, for want of a better word, the alternative conversation, which is actually a conversation that could take us in the direction of being a safer community at the same time as being a more respectful one that engages with the real circumstances that people find themselves in. Narratives, fear is a strong narrative to paint pictures in people's minds and the law is tied quite closely into that. Yes, I think that's a, that's absolutely right and we generalise from them so mm. we can overstate the case. In fact, really the media cycle is driven by the eye-catching or the ear-catching uh, crime that mm. we hear about so regularly and that builds a sense of threat and we live with that personally and as a community. And it is unfortunately too easy for politicians to exploit that sense of Mm. threat uh, and offer themselves up as the bringer of safety through punitive measures. What is your interest in educating students on the prison experience as a university lecturer? What's your passion there? So at the ANU College of Law, there's a program called the Law Reform and Justice, Social Justice Program that engages with the community in many different ways. But it's, it's essentially harnesses uh, volunteer students to get into the community and put their legal understandings into practice. And on a very real level, it's students who have compassion, have been brought to the law school and legal study through that motivation and want mm. to actualise it out into the community. So one of those programs is the 
AMC or Alexander McConaughey Centre Prison Issues Literacy Program. And that involves six students going with an academic supervisor who is myself or there are some other lecturers that are also involved out to the prison. We run six sessions for different cohorts of prisoners depending on the needs in the prison at the time. And those involve learning from the prisoners themselves what legal issues they might want to discuss. It's not a legal advice session, it's really more broadly legal understanding and literacy. And that might be, you know, the sentencing process, it might be the criminal justice process more generally in trials, or it can be family law, for example, because many people have those concerns about children and how the law operates. So it's very much providing that foundation. It is that, but one of the key insights and, and one of the key outcomes for the program that reinforces itself over and over again is that what we're really doing is taking students who come from a particular background, generally one where they and their family members have not been exposed to imprisonment or many of the disadvantages that result in imprisonment, and they are coming face-to-face with prisoners who have, and who have many of them done terrible things. What happens then is quite magic, for want of a better word, and it is that the students start to understand prisoners, not as prisoners, but as people. Mm. And likewise, the prisoners see these volunteer students coming and putting that time in, and they feel like they are people. And that's my observation, but it's a very powerful one and a life-changing one for these students, and so a very valuable program that's run by the ANU College of Law. And it ties very much into that compassion narrative because... Mm. Once you start seeing someone as a person, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be in prison, for example. It may be that their offence is such that they're a danger to the Mm. community. But what it does mean is that you look and see the whole person. uh, And that opens questions of, well, why are they there and could we be doing things better Mm -hmm. than simply locking them away? And could we be doing things better whilst they're in prison so that when they come out, they're able to be valuable community members? Mm. Your research into sentencing outlines how as a justice system Australia focuses on being, we spoke about this before, tough on crime. Why should compassionate justice be considered as a legitimate approach in the legal system in your point of view? You've explained or spoken to this to some extent, but Mm -hmm. why do you think there needs to be that integration of compassion? Well, I I think from even stepping away from the importance of engaging with people who come before the system as people and understanding that they could be our our brothers, our sisters, Mm. our cousins, our family members. Other than that inherent equality that is embedded within this notion of compassion, I think it's just a fact that tough on crime doesn't work. And so people have coined the term smart justice, and I think that smart justice is inherently wrapped up with a compassionate approach. And the reason for that is that smart justice looks at the question of why. When we take a tough on crime approach, for whatever uh, that may mean, what we're often doing is turning a blind eye to the question of why. So we're turning a blind eye to the fact that disproportionately those in prison are people who've struggled with mental illness Mm. and mental impairment, with intellectual disability. Disproportionately they are people that suffer with addiction problems, which are often tied up very closely with mental impairments and uh, and illnesses or in our nation when we turn a blind eye we can allow things to happen like we've done to our first Australians Mm. and it doesn't take us long to go from reflecting on the fact that if you go into an average juvenile detention centre in Australia 50% of those children in that detention centre are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and that's from a population base of about 3% and if we come to terms with that 
and don't just simply wring our hands and about that and say, well, it's all too hard. If we really come to terms with that, what that tells us is there are reasons why that disproportion is there. And really, we as a society can be much more compassionate in understanding that and doing something very directly and systematically about trying to to address the question of why and to reduce those uh, levels of imprisonment and ultimately the levels of, of offending uh, and dysfunction within community. But where we shut our eyes, we turn off to Mm -hmm. the why, and the why is very much the first, the understanding point, and the understanding point is what leads us on to the what should we do. The worst example of the tough on crime blind to the why question is what happens when we get into mandatory sentencing and we we directly, the legislature passes law that prevents even judges and magistrates mm. from considering the reasons why an offender may have offended or the pathway that led them there, their moral culpability, mm. their prospects of rehabilitation and the like. That disturbing statistic of 50% of Indigenous, of juvenile detention prisoners, that's alarming. Yeah, and I suppose I can't let that go without saying that when we get to the adult population, we're looking at over a quarter of those prisoners being Indigenous, and uh, it's worse for Aboriginal women being 33%, so a third of our prison. They're pretty devastating statistics, and um, I think we need to face them. For a population of 3%, that is absolutely devastating. As a criminal defence lawyer in the Northern Territory, you spent some time in the NT. What were your impressions of the justice experience, particularly for Indigenous Australians? I suppose for our listeners, many perhaps won't have that first-hand engagement with what it may be like for an Indigenous person facing justice. And I only come at it from, if you like, a lawyer's perspective of being there. Although I must say that um, that I'm connected into communities in ways that means that I understand from a closer hand perspective. But what I can say that that perhaps listeners won't quite have come to terms with is that um, 80 to 90 percent, say in Alice Springs, 80 to 90 percent of those going through the court will be Aboriginal. A very significant percentage of those people will speak English as perhaps a third or fourth language. There is limited resources for interpreters, and so. The justice communication, if we can call it that, and the engagement between lawyers and clients is one that takes place in often faltering English without any real or certainly no high degree of of communication and understanding. What that means in terms of the system is that really, if we face the facts of it, there's a great silence that takes place in the courtroom Mm. where the voice of clients, of, of victims and witnesses who are Indigenous, Aboriginal from Central Australia play little role and that's quite a tragedy and it's a tragedy for those people it's certainly something that the very many well-meaning and committed lawyers and justice professionals that work out there have to come to terms with Mm -hmm. and yet still find meaning within their employment uh, and with the small gains and important gains that they can make on behalf of their clients and those that do survive learn that there is despite those differences and difficulties, cultural difference, cultural uh, communication difficulties, there's a very deep equality of experience that you can engage with when you sit in the cells below court and see the person on the opposite side of the table as a real person in a very Mm. different situation. Understand that though you may be privileged, Mm. they don't necessarily want to be you and that there is also something incredibly special about uh, that person and their connection to country and culture that you as the non-Indigenous lawyer 
uh, can barely understand. So, you know, there are some incredible aspects of working in that setting. Um, however, the fact of the matter is that there's a, a significant silence. And more importantly, I suppose, or perhaps not more importantly, but there's very much a revolving door within the justice mm. system. So you as a lawyer will see the same client. They will go into prison for a stint. They will come back out. It may be a matter of a few days and they will end back up back in prison. Uh, and that is incredibly disheartening. And it is an indictment on the justice system, which doesn't do anything and does not or does very little by way of establishing programs that might actually get to the roots of the offending behaviour. Very often that's in addiction. That's with mm. many of the distressing aspects of, of um, what has been brought to Aboriginal Australians in Central Australia by colonisation. So there is a lot there. For many, it's too much. It's too hard. But but it is a, a broken system yes. with people doing their best within it often, well-meaning, but one that really requires us to step back and almost start again in our thinking. To confront the truth is probably the first step as a society, as, as an Australian society, that we need to take. We need to have the courage to kind of step up and say, well, yes, this is broken and it does require our attention, not our denial. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think compassion at its root, and in fact, if we're getting to the point of meditation at its root, is about um, seeing the reality as mm. it is, not turning away from it, tuning into that suffering of experience of people, and perhaps accepting that we may not know the solutions, we may not know what to do about this, but if we simply turn away and deny, we're walking the other way. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on Local Current Affairs Program Subject ACT, where we explore issues from a curious and informed view. That was my conversation with Senior Lecturer Dr Anthony Hopkins from the Australian National University's College of Law, talking about compassionate justice in the Australian prison experience. Stay with me now as we continue our discussion on Local Current Affairs Program Subject ACT, 2XXFM 98.3. I'm Becca Posterino. Why do you believe Australia's current legal system is not conducive to rehabilitation? I mean, you've spoken to this revolving door, which must be absolutely disheartening as a lawyer. Why is it not conducive to rehabilitation? Well, I think it comes back to some of the things that we spoke about in, in terms of the political football that the justice mm. debate can turn into and the fact that it is that it is easy to prey upon the fears of people and, in fact, preying upon the fears of community members and the voters, it can be, unfortunately, very effective to demonise or, or make monsters out of those people that go through the court rather than understand them. But, look, I think if we step away from that, what I can say on a general level is that you know we've got a, a funding model and a focus that sees imprisonment as the solution when the evidence simply establishes that that is not the case and mm. that is not working we've got a situation which is really quite a mad and irrational situation where the average cost of imprisoning a person for a year is $110,000 and we have an imprisonment rate as I said before that's doubled in the past 20 years and so our expenditure on imprisonment is going up and up all the time and if we could see that for what it is uh, and understand that with a bit of forethought, if we plan and reinvest it at the early stages of people's lives when many of the issues that result in future imprisonment are coming into being uh, and can be addressed, uh, then really, even on an economic rationalist point of mm. view, it makes a great deal of sense. 
perhaps one of the problems here, again, coming back to politics, is that political cycles are in terms of three or four years. Uh, and so investing in the future in that way is a challenging thing to sell mm. to the community. Investing in locking people up, unfortunately, is all too easy to sell mm. to the community. As you say, it ties into that argument of denial versus confronting the deeper issue if it is a, a too hard basket situation, which is what you say connected with Vipassana meditation is really digging deep and having that investment in human beings. And this is these are social issues connected to punitive issues. It's not just simply a lock the door, throw away the key. That's how we eradicate these problems. These problems are entrenched and they need recognition and they need investment economic investment well that's right and we need to recognize that the vast majority of prisoners are coming back into the community Mm. we can't simply warehouse lives although that's one of the criticisms Mm. of what we're doing people are coming back into the community and we would be blind to turn away from that fact Mm. and not work as hard as we could to ensure that those who are locked up come back into the community with a better chance of remaining in the community yes and being effective members of the community Mm, indeed which is is really the crux of what we're saying, Mm. isn't it? Getting to the common interest, myself and you, Anthony, of Vipassana meditators, and to explain that, I guess, Vipassana meditation is a stream of Buddhist meditation which originated in Burma, and it is simply sitting within the body with the breath and noticing the changes as they change from moment to moment. Yes, essentially that's right. It's, we're focusing in meditation and, and Vipassana, but in other meditation on, on the present moment experience yes. and very often in particular in Vipassana, that's the present moment experience within the framework of the body and learning firsthand, I suppose, the connection between mind and body and how, to take one example, the arising of anger in us as an emotion will have a direct impact upon our body and learning that to engage and explore and investigate and stay open to that arising experience within the body actually enables it to dissipate without the reactivity that so many of us, all of us in fact, are so caught by, but one which within the criminal justice system is often a very significant driver of offending Mm. where uh, impulse control, anger and so forth addiction and are such drivers mm. of offending. It's a really good parallel to draw from our instinctive reaction to anger and emotion and the criminal justice system. If we see a criminal, by definition, there is a reaction to that. It is very impulsive in a way, but it's institutionalised impulses or institutional reactions that there is no alternative outcome. It is punitive and there's no discussion and there's no recognition of the human being behind that response. Yes, I think that's right. And I think ultimately compassion comes down, and this is why the Dalai Lama's definition is so important, that it's um, it's recognising the suffering within ourselves and others. Mm. And what that is also getting to is the point of shared humanity. Mm. And so whilst our lives may be so very different to those of a prisoner in the prison near you, that actually at a core there's a lot that we share and there's an interconnection. We are members of the same community. Mm. And we, to varying degrees, will struggle with our own habits patterns of Mm. blind reaction whether that manifests as reaching for a glass of wine at the end of the day due to levels of stress in a blind way or whether that might manifest in in needing to shoot up heroin these things can be understood but only if we stay open to the fact that people remain human almost no matter no matter what they've done 
and that that's a different question to whether or not incarceration is something that that has to be imposed or not. Back to the discussion of Vipassana meditation, do you think it needs to be or should be introduced or considered into the Australian legal system and and why would you like to see this integrated as a form of rehabilitation? Well, there's a number of reasons, I suppose. One of them is that a key one is that we lock people away if we're thinking about a prison situation. We lock people away in in environments where they really are left by themselves. Mm. Um, we also lock them in environments, and and few listeners perhaps will have been into prisons, which no matter how humane we try to make them, are environments which hold within them a great deal of fear. And where prisoners, and this is my experience as a lawyer, at speaking with clients, uh, are faced with dealing with their own mental health issues, their own anxieties, their own depression and their own fears, um, very much alone but with very few tools actually to handle that circumstance. And I suppose it's no wonder then that if we do that in this environment which is so very divorced from the community and we don't give tools for people to really come to grips with what might be deeply at their core undamaged Mm. and where the suffering may be, then we really aren't equipping them uh, with mm. what they need when they come out. But if we come to the research in terms of um, what it shows about Vipassana meditation, mm. but also other mindfulness meditation approaches, what it does establish, and this is in forensic settings, but also outside of forensic settings, so keeping in mind that Vipassana as a, as a, as a course is taught in an intensive 10-day mm. format for all new students in a silent retreat. And we might come back to the, the issues that creates in terms of the logistics for prisons yeah. of implementing. But Um, But it's taught in the same way, whether it be in prison or out of prison. But the research shows um, significant impacts on emotional regulation, so the capacity to to control impulses and depression being significantly affected or reduced, anxiety impacts that are significant in relation to addiction and general distress and well-being. And interestingly, in the forensic setting, it's also been found to to increase the likelihood that a prisoner will accept responsibility for what they've done and indeed confess to uh, to other crimes for which they may not have been uh, convicted or prosecuted. An interesting finding, but one that I suppose goes to the power of the technique as a an approach to introspection, one that the West simply mm. Uh, hasn't had or has only in mm. in small measure historically this engagement with the reality as it is in your body and your own body uh, how that can then externalize out into many of the the behaviors and thought patterns that the person has i understand that in the u.s they have integrated uh, vipassana to some extent you would be able to speak to that why do you think it is such an obstacle for the australian system i know we mentioned logistics and the simple cost of, of managing at such a setting but how difficult would this be to bring in in reality do you see it as something impossible or do you think it, it could be Perhaps if I speak first to the, to the US experience, Vipassana meditation by way of a, a 10-day silent retreat in the tradition as taught by S.N. Goenka has been something that, that's been taught in prisons for decades with the first courses starting in the Tihar prison in India and quickly extending out to become a regular program within that prison. 
the US is one of the first Western nations to trial. And the US is, is a strange island, I suppose, on one level, because we're talking about a country that imprisons 2.5 million of its citizens and has, in fact, 22% or thereabouts of the world's prison population. It's quite extraordinary. And yet there are these islands of innovation within <laughs> the USA. Extremities. and That's right. And perhaps because they're pushing back against such a powerful, mm. punitive approach, mm. um, we get the flowering of therapeutic jurisprudence, quite extraordinary achievements happening. Anthony, this is a discussion that I hope we continue to have and a really important one. It's been fascinating and um, informative for me to, to hear your insights. So Thank you so much, Anthony Hopkins. Thanks uh, very much for having me, Becca. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're tuned into 2XFM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT, where we navigate local current affairs impacting our community. That ended my discussion with Senior Lecturer Dr Anthony Hopkins from the Australian National University's College of Law, shedding light on the principle of compassionate justice in the Australian prison experience. Next week on Subject ACT, we continue to explore the justice theme. I invite Assistant Professor Lorana Bartels, Head of School of Law and Justice at the University of Canberra, Dr Ruth Armstrong, British Academy Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Institute of Criminology at St John's College, University of Cambridge, and Dr Amy Ludlow, College Fellow and Lecturer in Law at Gonville and Keyes College, University of Cambridge. Our fascinating discussion explores how a multifaceted education can broaden potential as part of the prison experience. Tomorrow, Doug Dobing presents Tuesday's edition of Subject ACT. And coming up next, topical storytelling from Community Radio Network's All the Best. Tune in each weekday, 8.30 till 9am on 2XXFM 98.3 or stream us live on www.2XXFM.org.au. Backslash listen. I'm Becca Posterino. Enjoy your day.